we don't understand people we disagree with. You know, there's a deep distrust of the news right now. And I think being challenged by the news they're reading is something people find really refreshing and aren't getting in a lot of other places. You know, if I wanted to know what was happening around a big controversial story, I would have to read the Wall Street Journal and then the New York Times and the Washington Post and then watch Fox News and then go to National Review and then read the Huffington Post. And I was like, God, it would be so nice if this was all just in one place. And then I was like, oh, I could do that, actually. I figured I couldn't be the only person out there who wanted that. And it turns out I'm not. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. So it's a new year, and 2024 is going to be an interesting one. As we figure out what we're doing with this podcast, we thought we'd kick things off a bit differently. As you know, Rajiv Satyal is a longtime friend of the pod. What you may or may not know is that beyond being a world-class entertainer and comedian, Rajiv also hosts a couple more shows, one of which is The Tangent Show, where he talks with guests from the fields of entertainment, politics, business, religion, and tech. One of Rajiv's recent Tangent Show conversations was with journalist Isaac Saul, whose newsletter and podcast, Tangle News, is an increasingly relevant source of down-the-middle news for the divided times we live in. Tangle is an independent, nonpartisan politics newsletter that goes deep and summarizes thoughtfully the best arguments from across the political spectrum on the news of the day. Rajiv and Isaac covered a lot of topics, including the political makeup of Tangle's audience, how our news sources and news cycle really dictate our outlook and discourse. It's a down-the-middle conversation that might give you some pause wherever you're coming from. So I'd encourage you to listen with an open mind and maybe even subscribe to Tangle News. So we hope you'll enjoy this candid conversation between Rajiv Satyal and Isaac Saul. Welcome, everybody, to The Tangent Show. My name is Rajiv Sathyal, and I am thrilled to be sitting down with Isaac Saul. You may know him as the founder and the voice of Tangle, a, what do we call, a newsletter and podcast that takes a look at what the left is saying, what the right is saying, and then gives Isaac's own take on the matter, with which I tend to agree quite strongly. Let's just say we welcome Isaac Saul to the podcast. How are you, Isaac? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. I'm really excited that you said yes. I know you are a very, very busy person, so I'm going to jump right into my question. So why did you name your show Tangle? That's a good question. So uh, I actually did a little bit of a competition when I first launched the newsletter. I sent it to about 100 friends and family and former colleagues, folks like that, and basically just said, you know, sent sent an example of the newsletter and had people fill in suggestions for what they thought the name should be. And it was actually my brother-in-law, my wife's brother suggested the name Tangle. And when I read it, it just clicked. I just thought it was a great name. It was catchy. It was short. It sort of implied what it was about, this kind of tangle of political ideas and arguments. Um, 
and yeah, it just, it just resonated and felt kind of startupy and catchy and fresh. And so I ran with it. I love it. It does land really well. My brother worked in the naming space for a while and they named things. His company named Swiffer and they named the PowerBook and various Lexus <laughs> brands and things like that. And there's a lot that goes into it. I worked at Procter & Gamble in marketing. So I remember all of this very, very well. What about Tangle do people seem to be responding to the most? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I think... First of all, there's a deep distrust of the news right now. Um, you know, most often we talk about that from the perspective of conservatives in America, but I think liberals also have a lot of beef with the news and also feel like the news is responsible for a lot of things that are going wrong in the country, the way the media acts, the incentives the media has. You know, it's hard to talk about anything as a giant monolith. But in my experience, the thing people really love the most is just kind of a genuine, transparent, honest voice where I'm upfront about where my biases are and what my views are. And I give myself space to share those, but they're, you know, compacted to one section in the newsletter. And then it's, you know, incontrovertibly balanced. I mean, we share three arguments from the right and three arguments from the left on whatever the big topic is that we're covering. So anybody who's reading the newsletter or listening to the podcast will really get a holistic look at an issue, run into some perspectives they don't like, run into some perspectives they feel like are representative of how they feel. And I think that connection and that, you know, being challenged by the news they're reading is something people find really refreshing and aren't getting in a lot of other places. You know, I think the reason I started Tangle was you know, if I wanted to know what was happening around a big controversial story, I would have to read the Wall Street Journal and then the New York Times and the Washington Post and then watch Fox News and then go to National Review and then read the Huffington Post. And I was like, God, it would be so nice if this was all just in one place. And then I was like, oh, I could do that, actually. Uh, and that was a big impetus for me starting the newsletter it was just like, I figured I couldn't be the only person out there who wanted that. And it turns out I'm not. I'm in awe of how you assemble so much content so quickly. I mean, it's all work, quote unquote, but what part of the process really does feel like work? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I would say, you know, I'm my my background and training is as, you know, a, a reporter. So I'm used to writing on deadline with the clock ticking and we send the newsletter every day at noon Eastern. So I'm pretty comfortable with like a two or three hour stressful block of just like, I have to finish writing this piece and get all these points out and get them concise and clean up the copy. Most of the work is the research. It's the writing or it's the, the reading, the listening, the watching, the calling experts to interview them. If I don't understand something, you know, texting sources, that kind of thing. I mean, that is the really big lift. I think the part that probably feels like most work and the thing I like doing the least is honestly nothing to do with the newsletter. It's just like the customer service element. Uh, we, we are a, a newsletter platform. So uh, a lot of people, you know, they subscribe, but they're not getting the emails and they're having issues with their email provider. They can't log in on the website. And, you know, I'm not a one man show anymore. I was for a while. I'm starting yeah. to hire a small team, but uh I still handle a lot of that stuff myself on top wow. of the the content creation. So, you know, I'm getting inbound emails. I usually finish my day with like customer service stuff. And it's a lot of people who are like having technical problems, which sucks for everybody involved. And, uh, you know, I think that's the part that I really, really don't look forward to <laughs> in uh -huh. any given day. 
I could completely understand that. A friend of mine is a creative. He hated the accounting piece. I think anything that's like operations or maintenance where you don't feel like you're creating something, it's it's essential. You need it. And it's really nice of you to, to follow up with people like that. And I think that's great. I think you've shared this before, but what is the split? I know that it's hard to label people, you know, liberal, conservative, moderate, those labels are shifting, but self-defined or however you measure it, what is the split amongst those three groups? Yeah, so... Generally, what we see when we poll readers, so, you know, that there's some inherent bias in that uh, the kinds of people we know who take polls can change depending on what the format is. But when I ask readers and survey them, about 40 to 45 percent of our readers will self-identify as liberal and then about 30 percent will self-identify as conservative. And the last sort of 25 to 30 percent will say that they're independent or third party or they're like really far off on the fringes in one direction or the other. And they, you know, so they don't like either party and, you know, they're, they're very hard right or very hard left. Um, I would say those people are, are a minority like they're in the country. They're a minority of the people who read our newsletter. So a big chunk of that kind of other group is mostly independents and third party voters. Mm -hmm. That, that makes sense. And that, that seems like a, a, a fair balance. Look, I, I toured a political solo show called The Man in the Middle. You know, it was really centrist, uh, as you seem to be. The message, though, was very clear, and it was very anti-Trump. And I performed it in my hometown of Cincinnati, and at least half the audience was very pro-Trump, Trump voters for sure. And I got a standing ovation at the end of it, even though I was basically telling Trump to go F off. I, I'm always impressed by people, I guess I'm throwing myself in this mix, but people who can sort of find that line, and this question is becoming very self-complimentary. But at the end of the day, <laughs> how do you how do you do that? And 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 who else, I guess my question is, who else is doing this work? I think you sent it out recently, maybe this week, about the 1440 or something else. There, there are a couple other sources of information. Uh, who else is doing God's good work here? Yeah, I mean, look, I think, first of all, the number of people who are doing it is growing. Uh, I would have loved to see your show in Cincinnati. That sounds fascinating. I think uh, we live in an age right now where conservatives are, frankly, a little bit better at laughing at themselves than liberals are. So I'm not totally surprised that you were able to land some punches on Trump and, and still get a standing ovation. Um, you know, I, I, I think that there are, first of all, 1440 is a great organization. They do like a new, a very quick news roundup. You know, you can read their newsletter in four or five minutes and they're excellent because they do it in really neutral language. You know, they're reporting big stories in just a couple sentences, which uh, I think is really hard to do. Tangle is definitely more in depth. You know, we're mm -hmm. trying to really explain an issue and allow people to understand it and then share the arguments around it. So our newsletter might take, you know, 10 or 12 minutes to read in full. Uh, I'm a big fan of a lot of the independent creators that have come out of places like Substack. Uh, you know, like I, I think the free press, what Barry Weiss is doing is mm -hmm. a great publication. You know, I don't agree with all of our politics. I agree with some of them. They publish stuff that challenges me that I agree with. I think they they have a really open platform I like the work that they're doing. Uh, Ground News is an awesome resource that I actually use in my day-to-day, -day, which is actually a Chrome extension that will tell you hmm. how much of one side is covering a story. So it's really interesting to see because one of the big things that happens in media bias is not that the story itself is, you know, biased in some way. It's it's story selection that's biased. So you know, you'll right. see that Fox News decides to cover certain stories that the Huffington Post won't. Like if if an immigrant is undocumented and commits murder in the United States, 
Fox News is going to cover that story because it fits in with their general view that we should restrict immigration. Huffington Post is going to ignore that story because it doesn't fit with their general view of how we should, you know, think about immigration. And you can go to Ground News's website and they'll say, you know, this story distribution is 80% right, 5% middle and 15% left. And then you know like, oh, this is a story right-wing news outlets are kind of feeding their mm. audience. So I find it as a really useful tool. It's really interesting. We've partnered with them a little bit. Um, and, you know, I mean, look, I, I think the the big three, the New York Times, the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journals, I think they're responding to the challenge that they're getting from independent creators like me right now. I mean, the, the New York Times just hired David French. They're more prominently featuring some more conservative writers on their, you know, their opinion section. I don't think they're ever going to be you know, some pro-Trump editorial board and the Wall Street Journal is never going to be endorsing Democrats, but they are all recognizing that there's some bounce back, I think, that's happening right now. And some readers from both sides are, are not tapped market for them because they don't trust them and they want to earn some of that trust back. So I'm a little, you know, I have some optimism about where things are heading. I'm I'm like fingers crossed maybe we bottomed out on the insanity and the polarization. Uh, you know, I this next presidential cycle could certainly change my mind about that, but um that's I I think that it's not hard to find places out there that are trying to be at least independent and fair. You do have to go looking for them, but but they exist. That's good. That's encouraging and I'm really really happy to hear that. I know that in your bio, you talk a little bit about the VIPs, so to speak, that you count as either listeners or readers or, you know, people who have been influenced by you. What are the ones that you're most proud of where you go, yeah, I put that out there and that seemed to make a difference? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, look, for me, I, I know that there are like uh, some big Twitter personalities or, you know, journalists out there that I've seen opening and reading our emails. Uh, I think maybe Ezra Klein is one of the guys who's like one of the, probably the biggest name in the media space, uh, given all the things he's done and what he's doing at the New York Times right now. But the ones that I really get appreciation for are people who are like staffers in Congress. And, and I hear from them and can't really name them because they typically all write in saying, this is off the record. And then, you know, respond to an sure. email. But um, I do hear from a number of people on the Hill who are low level, you know, non-visible people that do a lot of the work that are doing politicians the work. get credit for. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they're, and they're just like, this is a great resource for me to kind of know what the media spin is on the stuff that we're working on. And here's what's actually happening on the ground. And sometimes it's like, Hey, you really covered this in a digestible way. You know, we're going to use this to try and explain this issue to our constituents or whatever. And that's a high compliment to me because it's the people who are the real experts that are doing a lot of the on the ground work saying, you know, this information's legit and you're doing a good job of sort of like portraying how things are actually functioning in the nation's capital right now, which is cool. Uh, but I will say all that being said, there are a ton of insider, highly visible newsletters. I mean, we have Punchbowl News and Axios and Puck and Politico I am not trying to be that. I mean, really, truly, genuinely, you know, I don't live in DC. I'm in Philadelphia. I like that outsider, like the outside in view on things. And I think a lot of the people who really like our content are not people who are like crazy Politico insiders. They're people mm -hmm. who are like, 
I've got a job and kids and I've got 15 minutes to understand what the hell is going on. And so I'm going to read your newsletter because I don't trust anything else. And that's my audience. Those are the people I'm going mm. for that, you know, require a little bit of explaining, genuinely want to understand what the issue is and, you know, maybe have some personal experience tied to it. You know, I wrote today about uh, some of the the education bill, the parents' rights bill that mm -hmm. the Republicans just passed in the House. And I can see in my email, I've got, you know, 30 emails from teachers who are responding about like how this legislation could affect them. So, you know, they're just regular Americans job. That's a normal job being a teacher. And it's cool to read those emails come in and then say, hey, this is what life is like for me when bills like this pass, good or bad. Uh, so I, I really love having that kind of the normie uh, readership, I think, in a lot of ways. I love that. That's such a strong point of view. And it, it's so clear your audience and what you're trying to do. It ties very well in with your vision and your mission, your purpose, all of those things. I was having, I had a standalone question, what kind of praise is most meaningful to you? Uh, you could still answer it because this is a chance for you to blow your own horn, which I, you obviously, <laughs> I think you deserve to do. Otherwise I wouldn't have you as a guest on my own show. But uh, yeah, what, what, when someone praises you for something or sends you a compliment, what kind where you go, yeah, good. That, that means a lot to me. Yeah, look, I, I, for me, it's actually a pretty simple answer. It's when it's when someone who's really partisan writes in and says that they didn't see this perspective out there and it moved their position a little bit. So, mm. you know, fundamentally, the reason that I think Tanglin needs to exist is what like the the social psychologists call, you know, the perception gap, which is basically that we don't understand people we disagree with. You know, if you ask Democrats, you know, what percentage of Republicans think that well-regulated immigration is a good thing, Democrats will say that number is like 50%, maybe half and half. The real number is like 90%. Hmm. Um, if you ask Republicans, you know, what percentage of Democrats say that most cops are good people? Republicans think that about half of Democrats believe that. The real number is like 85%. So we don't even understand what the other side thinks, how they feel about general issues. And I'm coming with that proposition that like, if you are a Republican voter, you actually don't really understand what the best democratic argument is about uh, this specific issue that we're covering today. And oftentimes when people write in and say, hey, I've been like watching the news for a week and this was the first time I saw this argument presented. I'm like, yeah, it's because you're watching a bunch of news that's just affirming your prior views because you're on right. MSNBC or Fox News or CNN. And so to me, that's like the highest compliment is like, okay, we punctured the bubble, change your perspective a little bit. And now you can make up your mind feeling like you have some kind of, you know, full version of the the events that happen, really. What kind of comment bothers you the most on, on the flip side of that? What makes you want to just tear your hair? <laughs> I don't have any hair, so I could say you could tear your hair out, tear your hair, tear your hair out and say, that's just not how it is, you dolts. You're just not getting this. Or, you know, is, is there something particular where it's a repeated behavior from listeners or readers? And I'm not asking you to knock your, your base. I'm not asking that at all. But the kind of thing where you go... Gosh, man, that that just that hurts. It stings when people say that. Yeah, no, look, I mean, I I think it's just when people unsubscribe because I, you know, I took a personal position that they disagree with. I mean, that's the toughest thing for me is just, you know, we go I go through so much effort to make, you know, 80% of the newsletter really neutral and balanced. 
and you know we're explicitly sharing these arguments that are from the right or the left and we have this very neutrally worded breakdown of what the issue is which is the hardest part to write of the newsletter is like just the introduction of the topic and then i give myself this space my take section that's just like here's my argument here's my view on this stuff and it says right up front, like, you know, this is my perspective. There's like a, like a disclaimer before my section comes. That's just like, this is my point of view. If you don't like it, you don't have to take it. It's just like my mm -hmm. space to share what I think. And when I take a position and somebody unsubscribes, cause they don't agree with me. I'm like, you're this, you're missing. That is you missing the whole point. Like I created this. So we all get out of our bubbles a little bit. Mm -hmm. So just, you know, accept the fact that you and I can disagree. And if you, if you don't agree, write in and tell me why, maybe I'll publish your feedback. Maybe you'll change yeah. my mind, but don't mm -hmm. just unsubscribe and bail. I mean, that, that to me, that's like the very closed minded kind of sensitive thing to do. And, um, that that's really frustrating because it hurts me from a business perspective. Obviously sure. I just lost the reader, but I also think it's like, you know, it's the antithesis of really what we're trying to do. Completely true. Completely true. Shifting a little bit to your takes, you know, and just getting to know you. So maybe this is the part where, you know, th those people who don't like your takes will, will, will eject out of it <laughs> for, for, for me too, maybe, but is, is the democratic or the Republican party. And I know there are more than two parties in this country, but those are the two main ones and the ones on which you focus. Are they doing more to help the average American? That's a broad question, but which party do you think is trying to help the, like you said, the normie out there? Yeah, look, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really hard question for a lot of reasons. For, first of all, and, and I'm, I'll, I'm going to try not to dodge here and give you like sure. an, an actual answer, but I think like it has to be said that, you know, we have really close elections in our country right now. So if you're starting with the the proposition that most Americans are smart enough to grasp, you know, whether who they're voting for is, is good for them or not. And certainly some people don't believe that, but if you're starting from that place that like every American voter has enough basic understanding of what's happening, what their needs are, that when they go to the ballot box and vote, they are voting for somebody that they genuinely believe is going to help them and, and is in their best interest, then I would say it's it's a pretty close, even split because most of our presidential mm -hmm. elections and congressional elections are you know decided by a, a small percentage point, a single digit percentage point. Um I think that the current makeup of Congress and presidents um, is, you know, the, the way the country is functioning right now, I think Democrats are providing more help to most lower income Americans. Uh, you know, a very specific policy view that I have is that the best way to alleviate poverty in the country and, you know, to, to help people is to actually provide more government aid. I think like it's been proven throughout capitalist history that the free market doesn't do it on its own. So, you know, whether you think that should be a priority for the government or not is like a big determination of how you vote. And I'm not saying whether I do or don't, I'm just saying that historically, and if we look across the globe, the countries that are reducing poverty the most and helping the most impoverished and struggling people are doing it with high taxes and providing a large government safety net. And the United States safety net, you know, in that context is not a particularly generous one. It's it's big and it's good and it's better than a lot of places, but it's also worse than a lot of places and we're the richest country on earth. So I think Democrats probably do more for, you know, most low-income Americans. 
I think the flip side of that is, you know, depending on what your occupation is, or whether you're a business owner, or if you have money, or if you want to start a business, or, you know, what state you're living in, there are a lot of times that Republicans might be doing more for you. Um, and, and that's just like, if you're a voter who is totally self-interested, and all you really care about is, you know, your personal prosperity, right. and feeding yourself and taking care of your family. So, that's like one issue. It's like the economic issue, which is still typically the most important thing to most Americans. But like you get into healthcare or immigration or trade, then it's like it's the ping pong ball and you're going back and forth. Um, so it is a really hard answer, a hard question to answer. Uh, I think it really matters what the issue is. I think that oftentimes there are politicians, especially the most popular ones right now in America, who are self-interested themselves. They're they're doing what they think is going to win them elections and raise a bunch of money. Uh, not all politicians are like that. Maybe not even most of them. But you know that's another thing to consider too. Is everybody's kind of playing their cards to advance their own careers. So I don't know. It's a it's a really hard it's a really hard sure. thing to answer. You know, to me, that is the purpose of government is to be that counterbalance, right? It is the kind of the difference between functionalist theory, where you know, which says that uh, society is made up of individuals. And, you know, just everybody's on an even playing field and then conflict theorists come along and they say, well, that's all BS and society's actually made up of groups. It's the AARP and it's the pro-life movement. It's the pro-choice movement. It's it's minorities. It's women. It's whatever. And and they're trying to use government as a as a counterbalance just to even the playing field. And I think that the size of that weight that you want to put on the other side of the scale really, to your point, determines, you know, which side you're going to support and where, where you're probably going to put your your energy. Is the Democratic Party or the Republican Party looking at the the other side of that issue or the flip side of it doing more to harm the country? And because as I look at the extremes <laughs> of both sides, yeah, I know you're laughing a little bit, but as as you uh, I see communism on one end and fascism on, on the other. And and I think people misuse these terms a lot. And, and I hope I'm not. But I do think that both communism and fascism are insidious. They're very damaging to the individual in our society. Of course, a Western based society is very individual based. But do you see one as more dangerous than the other, both in theory and then maybe also in practice, maybe what they're doing from a policy standpoint or cultural standpoint, which one seems to be doing more harm, active harm to the country? Yeah, I mean, I think that the current iteration of the Republican Party is is making the country a lot more angry and and hateful of each other i think there's a lot more fear in the way that they campaign and a lot more fear that's sort of central to how they're motivating their voters i think that's a really core part of you know how they turn out the vote uh but i think the democratic party is creating a huge block of people who are you know constantly victimizing themselves basically and and in my view seeing ghosts in a lot of ways uh mm. and and I've written about this which is just like the idea that they are looking everywhere for the isms you know like the racism the sexism the the fascism all these things mm. and they they see it out there because they're looking for it and the democratic party pours fuel on that and as a result Maybe they're not scared or angry the same way I think I see many conservative voters are, but they believe that there's so much more sort of evil and and like bad faith actors out there than I actually personally think there are in our country. Um, so 
it's a different kind of damage, I think, from like a political rhetoric standpoint. Uh, you know, man, again, it is a really tough question. I mean, fr- from from right. the perspective of like, you know, corporate sellout, like wh- wh- who who's benefiting uh, from the the powerful and the elite in our country right now? I think like both parties have done a really good job of offshoring American jobs and sort of, you know, greenwashing companies that are doing incredible harm to the country by like letting them get away with social media campaigns where they pretend to care about Black Lives Matter or climate change or whatever. And and they're sort of like enabling that because those major powerful entities are their donors. They're the people they have to keep happy. Um, yeah, I mean, like, from a war perspective, like a foreign policy perspective, I think Democrats have done a lot of damage recently. I mean, we're we're seeing like the beginning and the ends of things that uh, that I think the Democratic Party has really endorsed in a way that they they their voters don't want them to. We don't really have a strong anti-war party right now in America, yeah. which is unfortunate, in my opinion. Um, yeah, I mean, we could go down the list. There's so many different issues and ways to think about it. I don't know, you know, the party that's in power is usually the one that's doing the most damage because <laughs> they have all the power. So, you know, in, in any given month right now, I think Republic or Democrats with control of the Senate and the White House are going to pass more bills and change more laws, which increases the odds that they're doing things that are, you know, harmful for the country as much as they might be doing things that are really good for the country. Uh, obviously the Trump years were not great and the ending of the Trump years were particularly not good. I mean, he had a lot of wins in immigration and trade, uh, economic stuff, but you know, we did about as bad as we could have done. We got the worst of all worlds in COVID. He was central to that. Um, in my opinion, we got the end of his presidency, which, you know, I don't think was some big, like to insurrection, but it clearly tore the country apart and was a kind of the the climax of all his rhetoric and divisiveness, I think. And so, you know, I don't know that we ever come back from some of that stuff. I mean, I guess we'll come back from it, but I think it's going to take a really long time. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's all pretty negative, but I think yeah, uh, there's, there's a lot in there. There's, there's a, yeah, there's, there's a, a lot in there. Yeah. Each one of these questions, I feel, could be probably its own, if not full episode, probably mini series of episodes. But and and, and we're seeing that already. I mean, there are people. I, I think you just mentioned Isaac, where you're saying it may take a while to come back. There are people who believe that things have just always been this bad. I mean, not to get too deep or philosophical, but there's a fixed amount of good and evil in the world, or whatever some people believe. What do you say to those morons? That's my question. But it also this. <laughs> I guess my question really is, do, do you think that things are worse than ever? Or if not ever, at least in modern modern times, I, I define modern times as kind of post, I don't know, post 1980, maybe, but you can define it however you would like. And if you think they've always been that bad, make your case. And if you think they haven't, then when do you think that changed? Yeah, I mean, look, I, you know, 1968 wasn't that long ago. And that was like MLK and JFK getting assassinated in the same year and and nationwide protests and the civil rights movement. And, you know, we were dividing along lines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like whether we actually thought, you know, black people deserve full rights in our country or not. I mean, that's like what we were arguing about. I would say that that's definitely a worse time than right now. I mean, that was only 65 years ago. So, 
Um, Vietnam. You know, my parents were alive mm-hmm. for that. Yeah, Vietnam. God, I mean, right. all, think about that era. Like That's all 1968, uh, yeah. Have, yeah, yeah. Then you have, you know, Nixon being pardoned by the guy who replaces him. I mean, that's like a, imagine that happening now. Imagine, you know, Trump stepping down from office and Pence taking over and everybody wanting Trump to be prosecuted and Pence pardons him. I mean, something like that happening in today's political world would blow everybody's top off. So I don't know, like part of me thinks we are living in the advent of like the 24 seven news cycle we are in an era where everybody has a voice. Everybody can be a pundit. Every like, I, I don't think as people we are supposed to take in this much news and information. Right. And so, may, maybe in that regard, things are as bad as they are because that's the reality of the world we live in. But you know, I think if sixty years ago we had access to the technology and the the sort of internet and the resources we have now, I think we probably would view that era as being just as bad, if not worse. So. You know, again, I definitely, you know, my wife makes fun of me sometimes for being like too optimistic, like being sunny side guy. And so there's part of me for sure that has a lot of optimism about the country and believes that we are sort of bottomed out in a lot of ways in terms of like how bad things are getting from the divisiveness, like the, the lying, the corruption, all that kind of stuff. Um, You know, the, the flip side of that, I guess the counter argument is uh, to, to the information being bad is that we have a populace that's really informed. They're 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 able to get alternate avenues of information outside of just what a politician tells them. I mean, again, go back to 60 years ago. If the president comes on like Walter Cronkite or whatever and explains why we're going to war, there's like three news channels you're getting that story from and that's pretty much it and you either take it or leave it you know so today i think there's a lot more skepticism of the government i think that skepticism is good i think it's healthy uh because i think politicians are often you know bending the truth or playing with it and so you know i don't know i mean things are not great that's for sure things are not great covid made the world a lot worse we are definitely picking up the pieces of a lot of horrible stuff that's just happened i mean we literally just lived through a giant disruptive deadly pandemic like the 1918 flu so you know it's it's not ideal right now but uh yeah i think there's things have been worse maybe not in the last 30 or 40 years if we're going back to the 80s but um certainly at different times in american history for sure I think that's what really bothers me. And it's interesting that you bring up Walter Cronkite because a friend of mine, a mentor of mine, actually, we don't love that term, but I just spoke with him again this week and he's a little bit more conservative. I'm a little bit left of center. You really are pretty up the middle. I got to say that you really, you walk the, you walk, you talk the walk, walk the talk, whatever it is. But I, he's definitely a little bit more right for sure, more right to the right than I am to the left. And, but he would say that that was the beginning of, of the bias was Walter Cronkite's coming on the air and saying, well, this is what's really going on in Vietnam. And Cronkite, of course, felt that he had to, like, he felt like we were being lied to. The military and the government were not telling the truth. So the media, the fourth estate is going to have to hold them to account and just tell you what's really going on. But that really, even though that was probably noble in its origin story, it really led to this this bias. I don't think that you could draw such a stra- straight line from Walter Cronkite to Sean Hannity. I hope I, Cronkite is not turning in his grave by my mentioning them in the same sentence. But I do think that there is, you know, it obviously can go off the rails, rails kind of quickly, you know. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, this is, uh, again, like, when you have to 
fill a, a 7, 8 p.m. primetime news slot with stuff and there's not a ton of stuff out there, sometimes like you get reaching for things and it becomes a kind of sensationalist cesspool of like, what can we do to get people to tune in? And I think we have a lot of that happening right now. Uh, across the media space. And, you know, I wasn't alive for most of Walter Cronkite's tenure at the at the helm. So Same. I can't say for sure what all those nightly news broadcasts were like. But uh, I do think that we 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 certainly right now as a country lack a figure like that, that a large chunk mm -hmm. of the population trusts, you know, that like is a common person who we tune into, who's like, oh, this guy's like a voice of reason. Um, is there anyone like that? that? Is there, I mean, who's the closest, like, that's what I've been trying to think of. It's like Tom Hanks, maybe, but he doesn't get involved in <laughs> yeah. politics. But I remember that's what made it real for a lot of people is when Hanks got COVID. It was like, oh man, this is, this is really a thing. I remember stick, that sticking out, but who's the closest person or is there anyone like that? I don't know. It's uh, honestly, nobody for me really comes to mind. I Isaac think Saul. It, yeah, I hope. Yeah. You'd probably have to go the celebrity route. You know, I used to think it was maybe like Dolly Parton, but I don't know. Maybe yeah. she's more of like a, a little more liberal now. Uh, um, I don't know. Her song man. just got I mean, banned I, or whatever it is. Yeah, she I remember I don't know. I'm I'm not big on celebrity stuff, but I saw some kind of I always thought she was like the voice that could talk to anybody on both sides. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't know that we have it. Um I think like a guy like Joe Rogan kind of was it for a brief mm -hmm. period of time, but he's totally pissed off all the liberals now, so he's not really it. Um, you know, it's a, it's a tough time when there aren't, you know, there should be a collection of people like that, that are sort of common ground or a, a total media empire. That's like that, that's sort of a common ground. I certainly hope Tango could be that one day. Uh, but I don't think the country has it right now, which is a little disconcerting for sure. Yeah. I like, you know, Patrick Moynihan, I think it was, you know, you're entitled to your own opinions, not your own facts. And I think that's that's the problem, right? And and I think what you said, I mean, perception's reality. So the fact that we're all pundits, we're all exposed to this all the time. I like what you just said, which is that we're not really built to and people say that with cars too. We're not built to drive that fast. You know, we, we have eyes and 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 perception that matches when we could walk and run, not necessarily where we can drive 100, 150 miles an hour if you're if you're being completely irresponsible, which people in LA oftentimes are out here. But <laughs> I think, you know, it, it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where it's just the, you know, the perception's reality. It, it, it gets people matter and it, it's worse. We're worse off because of it. And I think what bothers me so much is that things are and should be empirically better. So when we look at 1968, it's like, yes, I agree with you. Uh, and, and I've heard, I've heard that argument a lot, but I'm like, yes, but it was such an, a different era. Like, black folks, people of color, my, my folks, brown people couldn't even come to the country until 1965 legally. So, there's a lot of like, gosh, is that our basis of comparison? Like after all the wealth and all the growth and everything we've done, if we're like, well, it's not as bad as the worst possible year of the 20th century, that's like, not very, <laughs> that's not very comforting, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I mean, I, I think that is a good gut check. Uh, you know, I, I recently, somebody asked me if there was a time that you could go back to, you know, in American history just because it would be better than where we are now, what would you do? And my answer was like, you know, the month before COVID, honestly. I mean, I, I wouldn't go reaching that far back into U.S. history for me. I think like, 
you know, maybe you can make an argument that somewhere in the early Obama stages or middle of Clinton's presidency or whatever, things were really good. It was like the economy was growing and there were middle lots of, of jobs. Clinton. And I, I agree. Yeah, I, not like, for the LGBT, not for the queer community. Uh, but if we're right, looking at the percentage that, of people, you know, you know if you look and my brother's gay. So, I mean, if, if you look at the percentage of people, you know, he'll be he'll be the first to make the counter argument and go, well, not for us. I'm like, I understand that. But if you're just looking at the number of people who had it pretty good or the percentage of people, which I know is not a great way necessarily to look at it. But, yeah, I would say like the 94, 95, 96. I mean, yeah, you had Oklahoma City and you have you always have things going on. But. Yeah, the economy was booming. We had just won the Cold War. Uh, people were excited about the internet, the future. You know, Y2K hadn't kicked in yet. The impeachment happened hadn't happened yet. And I look back at it and I go, yeah, I think I'd probably go back to like 96. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. And, you know, I, I, and I think that's a pretty reasonable argument. I mean, for me, I'm just like, look, we, you know, that was also a pretty bad era to be a person of color living in a major American city because you had like, the crime bills and you had the ramp up of, you know, so if you're looking at like the totality of all that stuff, I mean, we live in a time right now where, you know, mass incarceration is going down. Poverty is at historic lows. There's more wealth in the country than there's ever been. There's more people have health insurance than there's ever been. You know, we have a really low unemployment rate. We've got work flexibility, remote work, all this stuff. I mean, then why are people so pissed off? What's wrong? Why, because, why are some people yeah. so angry? I, I, I think, look, I think there's a lot of stuff. I mean, I, I certainly part of it's the social media stuff. I mean, when you can go on Instagram and see a million people who are living a better life than you every day, I, I can't imagine that's helpful. I mean, I have literally have my dream job. I married the woman I love. I'm living in an awesome apartment in Philadelphia. I love, I have, you know, family, friends, people are all in decent health, good health right now. Like I'm in the middle of my work day and I go on Instagram and see like my best friend in Turks and Caicos or something. I'm like, God, this sucks. I got to get out of this office. You know, like, I mean, that, <laughs> I'm human. Like every, everybody has that. So I, I think that's, that's part of it. I mean, I think there's, there's an element of that. And then, you know, I do think, the the partisans, at least from, you know, if you're talking in the political context, the partisans are more partisan than they've ever been. I mean, they are, it is total ideological warfare out there right now. And so if you feel like you're on a team, then you're constantly having your buttons pushed in a way that I think mm. kind of just pisses people off and, and raises the emotion. And, and that makes everybody feel not happy. I love I love your analysis and and the back and forth here. I I really am glad we're getting to this question. We're not going to get to all of them, but I tell you what, I cannot for the life of me figure out the answer to this one, and maybe you can help me. I know <laughs> that Trump supporters are not a monolith, and I love the fact that you used the word monolith earlier. But they do believe. Do they believe that Donald Trump or somebody like him and Bill Maher has been calling Ron DeSantis and everyone else a tribute band? Why, why, why listen to the tribute band when you get the real thing? That's why he thinks Trump will get the nomination again, plus the splintering of the number of people running. But do they think that Trump, for example, can truly make America great again? Like they really, they're true believers. They believe that or have they thrown in the towel on America and they're just trying to enjoy themselves on the way down? Are they playing in the quartet on the Titanic? And they're like, <laughs> you know what? Is this, I'm going to have some fun. And it, 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 this is it's over, but at least this guy's going to like see me to the bottom or they're like, no, this guy, like he's really going to turn it around. I really want to know the answer to this. And I don't know if you know the answer, but I want your take on it. Uh, look, I, I think uh, 
politics are more than anything like, you know, voting for prom queen. I mean, it's a popularity contest. And fundamentally, what Trump does that other politicians don't do is he sort of says the obvious thing in the room that, you know, that that they don't like he he breaks the third wall and talks directly to the audience, I think, in a way that a lot of Americans don't. And people love him for that. I mean, I remember vividly during the 2016 Republican debates when Trump was on stage and Jeb Bush said some bullshit talking point that was just the most classic, like, you know, run of the mill, milk Republican thing. And the whole audience starts clapping. And Trump just says, you guys know why they're all clapping, right? It's because tickets to come to this thing cost $1,500. And these are all donors sitting in the front seat. Nobody says that. Nobody does that on stage. And he did it. And, and it's like totally disarming. And he's 100% right. And then yeah. he goes in and rails him for, you know, George blowing it on 9-11 and the Iraq war and everything yeah. else. And like that connects with people. And of course, Trump lies. Of course, he obscures stuff. Of course, he, you know, he's self-indulgent and he's a, all he cares about is the media and he's sensitive and he's insecure. All those things are true. I lived in New York City. I was a reporter in New York City. I've heard unbelievable stories about the stuff Trump used to do with reporters. I mean, all the like John Barron, him pretending to be himself and calling newspapers and planning positive story. All that stuff is real. It really happened. That's really I believe it. Is. But, you know, he was an outsider. And I don't know that they're like celebrating as the country, you know, as the Titanic sinks as much as they think the Titanic sunk already. And they're like, we might as well just throw a grenade in there and see what happens. You know, like that. I think that's more when I talk to people who are like really diehard Trump supporters, I think that's more the attitude. I think there are some people who vote for him because they're like, you know, they care about two or three big issues like trade issues or taxes immigration. or immigration. And they're yeah. like, let's just do it. Like, I hate him. I can't stand him, but he's going to be way better on these things that I care about. Obviously, abortion is a big one, too. Mm -hmm. I think the people who have that kind of attitude of let's blow it up they think we're we're at the bottom and so they're like we might as well try something new like i've listened to 10 different yeah. republican presidents promise all these different things i voted for them and then they either lose or they don't do it when they get in the office so here's this guy who seems totally outside the norm so i'll give it a shot and see what happens um i don't know that he could you know i think this next election will be really interesting obviously he's still polling pretty well in a republican primary but it's a different ball game when you've served a term, which like he yeah. lost. I mean, he lost to Biden and that's not an accident. Like it's a lot harder to do what he did, you know, in 2016, once you have four years of a track record and you do all the stuff he did after the election. So I think he'd have a hard time winning a general again, even if he could win a Republican primary. But, you know, to, to the point, I think that it's because people got a taste of, you know, what he could actually accomplish. And not everybody who voted for him once or even twice liked it, you know? Totally. I mean, they already threw the grenade. And I think that there isn't this mystique as to what he would do, because you're exactly right. We we saw what it was. And what bothers me so much and what was in my show, The Man in the Middle, that really, really grinds my goat is that there is somebody here that his base was unshakable. They were never going to leave him ever. So then why didn't he just tell the truth? Like, that's what bothered me is the way he governed was a very traditional Republican, not the war piece. I will give him credit. He did not take us to war. And I love that about him. And the wall thing, I don't think we would have gotten that far on the wall or that far back or that far 
far forward, however you want to look at it politically. But for my part of it, I'm like, why didn't just tell people the truth? Because they weren't <laughs> going to leave him anyway. So why lie? Like everyone else is corrupt and everyone else lies. Yes, that is true. But then there's an opening for you to actually do this thing where you really do tell the truth. I mean, if I ever ran for office, that I would call it the Go F Yourself Tour, where I would go into a room and I would tell everybody in that room what they're doing wrong. Like the complete opposite. Like the George Costanza episode, the opposite. Yeah. Where it's like, just tell everybody what they're doing. Like the opposite of what they want to hear. And, you know, I'd probably lose and wouldn't get very far, but I think people would at least respect you. And I think that's what, what is so sad about Trump is that he folds like as soon as like you'd go in with all this bluster, but then he wouldn't get anything passed. He passed the tax cuts. And that was kind of like, I think he was totally wrong on trade with China. Like, I think he could have really stood up to them in a meaningful way. And he's slapping them with tariffs and doing all these things that just kind of hurt farmers. And then we had to bail them out. And I, it just created a whole other host of problems. I just didn't, I just didn't understand. Like, I mean, I guess I do understand it that he's not a man of substance. And so I'm asking too much of somebody who just doesn't and, get it. And DC, I mean, like, look, you know, DC is a really difficult place to operate. And he spent his first two years figuring out who in his administration he'd hired actually was on his team. And there weren't a lot right. of them, it turned out. I mean, right. uh, most of the people there were were babysitting and kind of looking out for him more than they were trying to enact everything he wanted to enact. So that that was a big part of it, for sure. Uh, you know, I think what you're seeing with Biden, who like, you know, regardless of how you feel about him, he's getting a lot done. I mean, he's mm -hmm. passed he a is. few really big bills. He's passed some major bipartisan legislation. He's checking off some of the things that he promised he'd do. And, you know, for everything that's wrong about him and, you know, he's too old and all that stuff. I mean, he <laughs> he knows D.C. and he's been a senator for 40 years. It's like the only job he's ever had. He brought in a team that was really experienced, really deep, and they know how to operate in that in that city and they know how to operate in Congress. And that means that they have this kind of inherent advantage and they've gotten a lot done, whether for, you know, better or worse, because they understand those elements. And I don't I think Trump really did come in with a lot of newcomers and a lot of enemies who were on his team. And uh, yeah, I mean, he, he missed the, a big opportunity for for the people who really supported him, for sure. Huge. So let me skip down to like, okay, you did a really deep analysis of, you know, the whole Mueller case and Trump and Russia and everything else and your take on it. And my simple take on it, and maybe it's too simple, because there's that old quote, at the center of every complex problem is a solution that's clear, simple and wrong, or, or something like that, right? So I, maybe it's that I'm falling into that trap. But to me, when Robert Mueller puts out his report, and I think it was part one could not prove collusion and part two showed likely obstruction of justice. To me, it was just so simple that it was actually because of part two that we got part one. In other words, <laughs> Trump, we could not prove collusion because he obstructed justice. And I think you do did a thing that I do a lot, which is you get really into the weeds and wrapped around the axle, which was like, at the end of the day, wasn't it just that simple? And you might be like, no, it's way more complex than that. And, and I'm the one that's missing the point. But isn't it just that simple, though, Isaac? Like, that's why Mueller and his team couldn't prove collusion is because Trump obstructed justice? <laughs> I, I, I appreciate the simplicity of that. I think that is a great political talking point. And I'm surprised I haven't heard more kind of like Democratic politicians use that against Trump. 
I do, I do think it's more complicated than that. I mean, look, I think what Mueller found fundamentally was that Trump's team was open to the idea of, you know, colluding or whatever word you want to use. They, they were open to receiving damaging information on Hillary Clinton from foreign nationals in Russia, clearly. Uh, whether they did or didn't is kind of an unanswerable question at this point. And I see what you're saying about like, you know, the the obstruction of justice is one way that it became unanswerable. But a lot of the stuff that Mueller was able to do and the FBI was able to do, I mean, you you look at the full breadth of their surveillance of the campaign, um, the access they had on, you know, different social media platforms, the testimony they got, the number of people they interviewed. I do think that if there was a big there there, that we probably would have gotten it. I mean, what he did was so exhaustive and and not just what he did, but Every Mueller. lead, yeah. What every lead that Mueller did, that that Mueller sort of planted in that report, every sentence has been chased down by reporters who know that they can make their whole career if they could pin Trump for something, and we still don't have the big there there today. I mean, which, which to me would be like, you know there was legitimate coordination between some sort of like Russian agents and Trump's campaign to, you know, present these kind of like hack materials or whatever, or that they were sort of passing along information on how to maybe obstruct the vote in specific States. Like, Hey, if you guys could, you know, make a giant Facebook group in Pennsylvania that gives everybody the wrong day to vote and we can, get 20,000 people out of the election, we might have a chance to win. And then they're executing some plan like that for Moscow, you know, whatever. That's like the smoking gun to me. Um, I don't think that that report was going to change anybody's mind by the time all the reporting came out and everything. But for me, I think like, you know, I respect the access and the breadth of what they did enough that if, if Mueller's saying that he can't prove it, I'm not going to say that it's there. Um, And, you know, we also know that there were things that Mueller's team did and that happened during the investigation and the reporting around Trump and Russia that went sideways against Trump and stories that were over-exaggerated, mm-hmm. mistakes that were made. Yeah, like, you did a that, great job of sharing that. Yeah, and, that, and that's come out since then too. So, you know, maybe it's a wash, maybe the obstruction worked. Uh, you know, some people got prosecuted, Trump pardoned some people. Um, <laughs> we had some laughs. Yeah, we had some laughs. Yeah. Uh, so it's like, you know, I think most most people have their minds made up about the issue. And I, and for me, like, look, as a voter, I think it's like bad enough that Trump's team was like, oh, yeah, we got this email from somebody who's yeah. like a Russian lawyer and saying they have dirt on Hillary Clinton. We're going to go meet them at Trump Tower in like a private closed door meeting like that's no bueno. Nobody should be cool with that. I'm not cool right. with that. Um, they're like politics is dirty and everybody does it. And I'm sure Hillary's campaign was doing a bunch of dirty stuff, but like, we can all just say like, yeah, no, we shouldn't. That's like not cool in America. We don't want that. We don't want to let in that sort of foreign interference. So, you know, I think for most people that was enough, but um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good point. It's a, it's a, it's a good talking point. It's it. I do. Yeah. I do appreciate the simplicity of it. 
Thank you. I, I appreciate that because, again, as a marketer in a former life, I am always <laughs> shocked at how bad the Democrats are at that. And I'm not the first one to say that. But I was like, guys, just say this. I think this is a pretty convincing point. And, and, and I, I believe I believe it. But more importantly, like you're saying, or maybe not more importantly, but more significantly in today's media landscape, it probably would have traveled. So at any rate, I have so much more I want to ask you, but I know you got to run. I want to respect your time as well. And uh, maybe we can get you back on at some point to run through the rest of these questions. But I really do appreciate your uh, your time today, Isaac. I really had a great time talking to you. Anything else to add? No, I'd love to do it. I mean, uh, part two would be fun. I know there's more more meat on the bone. Uh, all I will say is if you're listening to this, go to readtangle.com and, and check out the newsletter and the podcast. Um, we are, we're building a, a movement of, of rational and open-minded people and the more the merrier. So I'd love to have some of your listeners come join the party. Definitely. I'll uh, got to give a shout out to my friend, Curtis Katahama. He's the one who put me up on you. He's down in Texas. He goes, you should check out this guy, Isaac Saul. So thank you so much, Isaac Saul, for joining us. And please do go to readtangle.com. Subscribe, listen to it. I do every day or very close to every day. And it is now my primary source of news. I often scroll down to Isaac's take because I feel like he is truly, truly fair and balanced. So thank you for joining us on this episode of The Tangent Show. I've been your host, Rajiv, and I still am. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Hold. Potluck. Potluck. 